0: You're listening to The Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, Real Estate Runway family. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Peter Linneman with Linneman and Associates. This is the author of The Linneman Letter, one of the most advanced and current and pragmatic macroeconomic letters that you can read in the market today. So go check it out, LinnemanAssociates.com. This is a person who we use his research in pretty much everything we do. So anything you've seen Quattro put out is probably has some influence of Dr. Peter Linneman in it, So without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce him on the show. Let's get right into it. And before we do, if you get any value out of the show, please leave us that five-star review and thoughtful comment anywhere podcast or listen to, or like us and subscribe on YouTube. We're also now on TikTok at Real Estate Runway Podcast, so follow us there if you'd like to scroll and swipe and do all the cool things that they do today. And if you want to follow us on social media, check all of our team out at The Managing Partners Names or on LinkedIn. Instagram, Facebook, and you name it at Team Quattro Capital, one word, no special characters, or just visit us at thequattroway.com. You can get all of that from right there. If you want to apply to be on the show, please visit us at thequattroway.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to send us an email, request a topic, give us some feedback, anything of the sort, leave it in the comments or hit us at the podcast at thequattroway.com. And now on to your scheduled production. All right, all right, all right, Real Estate Runway family, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, your fearless leader, Chad Sutton. Good to see you all again. We are sponsored by Quattro Capital, if I can point the right direction on the show as always. And today I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Linneman, who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. Dr. Linneman, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing
1: terrific. Glad to be here and thank you for having me.
0: Yes. This one's been a long time coming, so I'm glad we got through the scheduling back and forth, but it's great to have you here. And uh, before we get going, it's important to know who our guest is. So did, I got to know, did you wake up one morning and decided you wanted to study economics or what got Peter Lineman to the man he is today? Before we get into some well, of your, your answer, awesome work.
1: I'll, I answered the first question about what got me into economics when I was a little boy. I always wanted to be a tarot card reader, and I found it took too much technical expertise, so I became an economist instead. I, I, Having said that, I grew up in a blue-collar family. Four siblings, one of them also went to university. My father didn't graduate high school. I was blessed to run into some great mentors. One of them was 101. I talked to her every day. I've been a dear friend for 50-some years who said, you ought to become an economist. I guess I did. And I studied at the University of Chicago and taught for many years at the Wharton School and started Lenin and Associates in 1979 as well. And I retired from the university about 12 years ago, and I continued Lenin and Associates, which does advisory, and we do Lenneman Letter, the book. And some investing, and I'm not, and I'm on boards over the years, probably twenty or so, public and private boards over the years. I'm not good enough at any one thing to make a living, so I have to do a lot of different things.
0: <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing there. And folks, I'll give this plug on the front end. Everything we're about to talk about can be found in the Lenneman Letter. At, I believe it's LennemanAssociates.com. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: That'll be in the show notes, scroll down, click it, give it a look, but lots of gold we're going to go through today. So without further ado, let's get into the meat today. And Dr. Lenneman, you have put together one of the most eloquent descriptions of what all has transpired with the Fed and inflation and supply chain and all that kind of stuff, and you culminate it in the term economic long COVID. And I think when we really listen to the analogy and consider that, it makes a lot of sense. So what I'd love to do is maybe start there. If you could kind of walk us back through your research and reading of the tea leaves, if you will, since we, we were in the 2020 times and what it all means to what's transpired before we can really talk about what's to come. Would you mind doing that for us?
1: Sure. So what I think people forget, and that's why I use the phrase economic loan COVID is, we were okay. We didn't have big inflation we had reasonably low unemployment. We had a reasonably steady job growth that was commensurate with population growth. We had all kinds of issues always with the economy, but we were doing just fine. We're not doing unbelievable, but we were doing just fine. And we had been, that's the U.S. economy, right? Constantly facing all kinds of problems, but it works its way through it. And then COVID happened and our governments and other governments around the world, whether it was right or wrong, doesn't matter, but they shut huge swaths of the economy down. As individuals, we panicked to varying degrees. We stopped doing things that we were allowed to do, and we weren't allowed to do a lot of things, even if we wanted to do them. And it's, it's not, not relevant whether that was right or wrong. It happened. When it happened, There were only a couple of possibilities. One is we never come back. We never reboot the economy. And if you remember, in April 2020, people talk like we never reboot the economy. No one's ever going to travel again. No one's ever going to go to a convention again. No one's ever going to fly again. No one's ever going to do anything except shop online again. So that was April 2020, if you think about it. And I said, well, that was crazy. I don't know how and when, but... Well, but the other possibility was supply comes back before demand. Now, think about what would have happened if supply came back before demand across the economy. Prices would have plummeted. We would be fighting massive deflation because for everything, if supply came back before demand prices would go down, people wouldn't be able to make payroll, they wouldn't be able to pay their loans. What a disaster. Or the other that would happen, which is by and large, demand would come back faster than supply across the economy. And of course, that was always the logical choice because if you have 23% of the economy collecting unemployment, which we did at that point in history, it's unlikely a lot of suppliers are going to get ahead of demand, right? You're going to let demand get oh, there. Oh, absolutely. So that's what happened. It was that simple. So the economy did recover. Demand came back. Demand is still short of simple trend GDP. And then if you just continued the pre-pandemic trend, where we've grown real GDP about 5% in three years, Normally, we would grow closer to seven, seven and a half percent. So one of the ways to think about it is in three years, we grew two years. That means we are not overheated. You hear about take away the punch bowl before the party gets up. We don't want to take away the punch bowl. The party hasn't even got to trend yet. We're not overheated because we're not back to trend. We're still underheated. We still have undergrown by about a year. That's tremendous pent-up possibility. Where is that? Travel and tourism. Travel and tourism. People say, well, all the plane seats are full. All the, yes, but you know what? Plane capacity is down 10 to 15%. Demand is still about 5% short. Just how do I know that? TSA clearances. So TSA clearances are short. They say, what about hotels? Well, yeah, hotel occupancy is up and room rates are up. Why are room rates up? Demand is back to about 95% of what it was in 2019. And room capacity is down 10 to 15%. So, of course, prices went up. Now, rooms are coming back online on some of the hotels that closed, but some of them really close. That happened Everywhere in the economy, steel, windows, boots, everything in the economy, supply, lag, demand, almost everything. Guess what happens when demand exceeds supply throughout the economy? Prices go up. And that's called inflation, but it wasn't normal inflation. This was prices going up because demand systematically exceeded supply. And the symptom, the long COVID symptom, if you will, the abnormality of it all was inflation that spiked. But that was good inflation in a strange way. Why? It sent signals, bring on more supply here. Bring on more supply. By the way, if all you have is pure inflation, just prices of all kinds of stuff is going up, and there's not shortages. It's not sending a signal to send more supplies. How do we know that it was sending signals? What happened to profits? Supply exceeded, lag demand. Profits went up a lot. And that's because supply was lagging demand. And it said, bring on more supply. And guess what suppliers have done? They brought on more supply. As they've done that, and as some of these regulatory barriers like China being shut down, for example, as a barrier, but not just China, a whole lots of places. you have seen supply chain, supply chain issues kind of evaporate. Now, they still exist in some places, but if we had picked 2007, there were some shortages of some products in 2007. There were surpluses of others. It wasn't systematically shortfalls. What made this period unusual in late 2021, 22, and heading into the 23, is systematically. You got inflation. And I kept saying, well, the Fed's raising interest rates. Is that going to unload the ships any faster? Is that going to bring on more capacity by raising interest rates? Of course not. We had a symptom and they were treating it wrong. And as a result, the Fed first said, and they were right, they, were first, they first said, no, we don't have to raise interest rates very fast. They had to raise them. They should have started raising them. And I wrote this at the time and let them in a letter. Late 2020, they should have been raising interest rates, but not 5% in a year, like 25 basis points and then maybe wait a month and then another 25 and then wait a month or so. Why wait a month? Because nobody knows what's going to happen. You're dealing with symptoms you've never seen before. They said, oops, we're not going to raise them. And then four months later, changed their mind and raised them 5% in a year. Fastest in history. In the most abnormal period in history. Well, that makes no sense. First, do no harm. And I remember in the 50 years ago, Five, zero years ago, I'm just about ready to begin as a graduate student at the University of Chicago, and I hear Milton Friedman say how terrible the Fed is. And Milton says, they're always late. They always overreact. They always think they're omnipotent. They always think they have great control over the economy like they're driving a precision automobile on a test track in perfect weather conditions. When... The reality is they're driving a beat-up car with bald tires on ice in a blizzard. And you can do damage. You can do real damage to yourself and others if you drive on ice in a blizzard with bulb tires in a jalopy thinking you have amazing control. And that's what the Fed is doing now. That's been their history. It's part of their DNA. They're not evil. They're not malintended. It's a systematic failure.
0: I love the track we just walked there. And if we can shift to monetary policy for just a second. And it's, it's important for us to remember, folks, not only did we shut down the economy, we shut down the economy for the first time since what, Noah's Ark? What's the last yes. time that the world stopped like that? You know what I'm saying? Long time, even during wars,
1: we didn't shut it down. We rejiggered the economy. But we didn't shut it down. You could still go buy clothes. Now, yes, they may not have had nylons in World War II, but you could go to the department store and shop. You couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't go on the good side of Walmart. Almost literally three years ago, you could go to Walmart. You just couldn't go on the... You could only do the grocery side. But this is... Of course, an economy is massively distorted when that happens. It's distorted beyond any recognition. And to believe that you recognize fully is just
0: folly. It absolutely is. And so if we shift to monetary policy for a minute and you did write this back in in 2020, and I believe your early 2021 letters that, hey, we probably should be moving the rates at this point to, to to make a difference here. We did what we did. We've moved rates incredibly quickly. And there's, there's a website, Peter, called fred.com, where yep. I love to go and Fred. past yes. data. Yep. I'm sure you use fred all the time. But if you look at the Fed funds rate over since the history of the Fed, as far back as data goes, right? and you overlay it with recessions, within an average of two years and a max of three years, my buddies over at Pinsford turned me on to this, <laughs> within an average of two years and a max of three years from the first rate hike comes the first rate cut. And it seems that the slower they do it, the longer that takes, and the faster they do it, the faster that happens. Do we think we've just created the same cycle that's about to happen in 2008, not from the recession, but from the rates going up and down? Of or wh- of Where do you think we're going here? Of course,
1: but go back to I'm not as smart as Milton Friedman was. If you overreact, you're going to get exactly what you described, right? Which is, gee, you're going to raise the rates too high, and then guess what you're going to do? You're going to say, oh, I raised them too high and I'm going to cut them. Well, then you're going to start overreacting the other direction. And that was one of his points. His point was this overreaction does damage. It's not like a positive one doesn't cancel out a minus one. A positive one does damage and a minus one does damage. And the damage done by those overreactions is the sum of two damages they don't neutralize and people fall into the habit that if the interest rate is a percentage too high it makes up for when it was a percentage too low no when it was a percentage too low was doing damage by the way when it was a percentage too low it was good for borrowers but bad for lenders right and doing damage on that side all the things lenders dealt with when it's a percentage too high it's good for lenders, but now it's doing the damage to the borrowers and all the knock-on and distortions from there. So, yeah, and the fact that they raised it so fast, they're, by, by the way, let me I'm not a political type. And as you, I think, grasp from reading Lenneman's letter, it's funny, uh, Republicans think I'm a Democrat, Democrats think I'm a Republican, and I know I'm neither one of them, okay? <laughs> so... There are two narratives that I run into about why the Fed is doing what they're doing. I think they're both wrong. One is that Republican, Republican conspiracy types, let's put it that way. The Fed is imposing all this harm on the economy now so that starting in about four months, five months, they can look like heroes. The economy will be good and the Democrats rule. Okay. That's the, and then the Democrat democrat conspiracy people say the fed is actually trying to torpedo the democrats by raising the interest rates so high that it damages the economy and it hurts us in the election cycles i don't think either one of them is true because i don't think the fed needs help to hurt the economy they can do it all by themselves
0: Uh, i'm laughing off screen here guys i love the analogies here just to summarize he said If you overreact in one direction, you're going to overreact in the other. Go back to his analogy of the car with bald tires and an ice storm, right? If you swerve it one direction, well, to prevent for yourself from hitting the obstacle on the left, you're going to have to swerve it right back, and you're probably going to overcorrect, hit the obstacle on the right side. So it's like...
1: This exactly. That's why it's such an apt analogy. It is such an apt analogy. It is. And by the way, at the end of the day, you don't have that much control. You have a little control. But... It's only to the extent you think you have a lot of control that you do a lot of damage. You don't achieve a lot of good, right? You don't achieve much more good than if you went very slowly and very cautiously moving the wheel, right? But in the process, if you think you got control, you're doing a lot of damage and you're not going anywhere. i give you an example. People, you keep hearing numbers like the inflation rate is 4.8% or 5% year over year. I don't care about year over year. I care about what's happening right now, right now. I care about minute over minute or day over day or week over week. Now, most of the time, minute over minute or day over day or week over week or month over month or year, they're all the same, right? They're all the same. We're in a period because of what was so abnormal that a year ago was still really abnormal. So when you compare it to today and you hear what the year over year is, it's talking more about the abnormality then than what's going on now. Now, how do I know that? In January of this year and in March this year, the monthly rate of inflation was one tenth of one percent in each of those two months. Now you say, well, let me just get my head around that from December to January. And then again, from February to March, the inflation rate was one-tenth a percent. So if I annualize it, it's like 1.2% in those two. Now, by the way, the year over years, were running 5%. Well, if it's what that telling you is where it was a year ago. Now, why did I say in January and March, because in February and April, The month over month rates were around 4%. Okay. So a lot of volatility. By the way, if we did second over second, there'd be even more volatility, right? So you have to have a little, what, nuance. And you say, let's think of the last four months, one tenth of a percent, 1.2%. Or let's do it in month, one tenth of a percent. And then it was four tenths of a percent. Then it was one tenth of a percent. And then it was four-tenths of percent. So that says over the last three months, we've had one percentage point of inflation. Okay? Add those together. And it's four months, so times three to get it to 12 months. Actually, it's not. You got to exponentiate because of compounding, but just multiply by three. It's close enough. So you have a 3% inflation over the last four months with a lot of volatility, so it could be as low as a percent, could be as high as, but here's the wild card. The main driver of inflation over those four months has been housing, which is around 40% of the index. Housing lags by the way they calculate by six months, roughly. Okay. They know this, this is not a mystery and they even have rationales for it. But what have you, what's happened to rents over the last four months? You're in the business kind of flat, maybe up a little a percent, not up 5% over the last four months, kind of nothing over the last four months. Would that be a fair statement? And I find some words blended average. Yeah, you could find us some places where it's up a couple and down a couple Pretty much a nothing. If I put nothing in for inflation, rather than what it was six months ago for housing, guess what happens to that one-tenth a percent and the four-tenths? They come close to zero. Close Mm. to zero. That is to say, if you measure inflation as it's happening on the ground right now, it gets very close to zero if you know what's really happening. There's one other bizarre thing. The other bizarre thing, and in an odd way, some research I did in the 70s actually helped them do this. But are you a homeowner? Absolutely. Okay. How much inflation did you have on your home costs in the last year?
0: None. Other than, not much. Property taxes locally because I live in a cool city, but other than that.
1: (laughs) But by the way, did your rent go up? for your oh, house. No, no you, when you bought your house, you fixed your rent, right? And so, yeah, you have some operating costs, but operating costs are small change, right, in the whole thing. Yeah. They calculate it as if your rent goes up because what they do is pretend you're renting to your neighbor and your neighbor's renting to you. Now, they have a more elaborate way of doing it, but that's what it amounts to. So the two-thirds of the households that are owning, who in fact had no increase to speak of, are being treated as if their rent went up. That's a little odd. And the one-third who are renting are being counted as if it's the rental increase of six months ago rather than the rental increase of now. But other than that, and when you make adjustments for that, We don't have much inflation. And it's not surprising we don't have much inflation because the fed's index of supply chain disruption shows we're back to norm, back to norm. Now, to show you how abnormal we were, this is not my data. This is their data. They have an index that measures supply chain disruptions. They've had it for years and it's a, it's quite volatile. And it was like four standard deviations above normal in 2021 and 2022. That is to say, there was more supply chain tightness than ever before by four standard deviations. And for those who don't know statistics, the technical description of four standard deviations is we've never seen anything like this before. Okay. and. We hadn't, ne- this goes back to where you started with economic law, COVID. We had s- never seen anything like this before. And therefore, it's not a- surprising that we got inflation created in a way we had never seen before and that it went away as that diminished in a way we'd never seen before.
0: And so what's interesting about everything we've just said, folks, is, and look, I think you even say this on other shows you've been on. We don't know what the Feds are going to do next. They don't know what they're going to do next, but and they'll figure it out. But if you just listen to all the tea leaves that we're reading here, okay, we, we've ran interest rates up faster than we ever have. We've jerked the car too far to the left. We're probably going to have to jerk it too far to the right, which means there might be yet another cycle of this in the next two or three years. So get re- don't get ready for rates to stay the same and low for ten years. There may be something else. But then you bring it back to the to how's the economy doing. And we're, for all intents and purposes, we're back where we were pre-pandemic. Pretty for close. Most we're
1: like two and a half percent short. You can look at that and say, by the way, if I told you what on April tenth, twenty twenty, that three years on will be two and a half percent short of trend, you'd have said, "Sign me up!" Thank God. You'd have become religious if you weren't religious, and you'd thank God if you were, right? So in the big picture, it's quite amazing, but yeah. we're still short. There's still all sorts of distortions out there. We're still about a half a million workers short of where we should be. Yes, we have more workers than pre-pandemic, but we're three years on. We should have more, a lot more work. And they are coming back. Right? Coming you showed back. a
0: chart of that. They're coming back, like pretty strong. And you guess what? So the whole nobody wants to work. Is they've come
1: back. Is they've come back. Job openings. Have Have narrowed. They're still high, but they've narrowed. Wage growth has narrowed and diminished. You can find skilled labor again, right? You're no longer in a position where almost no matter what you want to pay, you can't find not just skilled labor, you can't find workers. So things are normalizing. But if you shut down the economy the way it was done, you can't expect it to be normal. And that's why for By the way, some things are normal, right? The Sixers lost in the playoffs. So long COVID didn't change that. But there are things that did change, right? Which is we're still half a million workers short. We're still two and a half percent short on GDP. We got a bizarre inflation that was misread. Misreading the inflation caused strange inflation, uh, strange interest rate policy. By the way, what is it except Long economic COVID, that workers aren't back to the office. If I'd have told you in 2019, if I actually, if I'd have told you February 28, 2020, that only 60% of the workers would be coming into work on a typical. I'd have said
0: you were nuts. nuts. I'd have said you were nuts.
1: And if I'd have further told you, it's because employers can't get them back. You'd have said, he's lost it. What is that but economic long COVID? It's kind of trying to say that reality doesn't exist. It's trying to say we're as productive. By the way, we can, however good we do this session, okay? And you're good at this. However good we are, we would be better if we were live. You don't doubt that. 100%. If you were sitting across from me, we would both be more... We could read body cues and all that stuff even better. Now, that doesn't mean this is bad. We're both pros. We've both been around. We are 21 years old or 26 years old and never done this before. Imagine how this would go if we'd never done this before and we're 24 years old and the productivity is going to be lower.
0: Great analogy, by the way, folks. Great analogy right there. (laughs) It's lower.
1: I give you a Willie Walker and I do our program. I think we do pretty well, but we did it live last time. And it was palpable that we were actually not live in the, but actually face to face in front of an audience. And yes, most of the people viewed it virtually later, but it was, and productivity is just generally lower. If I'm going to write liniment letter. I generally do it at home with nobody around, okay? Now, how many people have that as the kind of work they do? Not many. That's a really niche kind of thing that most people need teams. Most people need simulation. I can't do that every day. I'd go crazy. And so that's economic long COVID, right? That's another one. And the entire office sector is suffering probably the most from economic long COVID. But travel and tourism, yes. by the way, if again, if on February 28, 2020, I said, how much higher demand do you think there'll be for travel and tourism in three years? You'd have gone, I don't know, 2% a year for three years, probably 5 to 7% higher. Well, it's still 5% lower. That's economic long COVID. Right. Now it's coming back. Vegas tourism, I just saw for conventions. Vegas conventions are now back to where they were in 2019. But if I'd asked you in 2019 what convention attendance would be three years later or four years later, you'd have said, I don't know, 2% a year up for four years, 7, 8% higher. That's economic long COVID. And that's why the economy isn't fully back. You can take these examples and it's just obvious.
2: Want to generate higher return and drive alpha for your commercial real estate firm? Now you can with Lobby CRE by 30 Capital. Lobby CRE is an asset management platform designed to manage and optimize cash flow for faster returns and more visibility into performance. Shift your strategy with the market, not because of it. Identify opportunities and mitigate risk now rather than later. And save more than eight hours per week through automation. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and book a demo.
0: It makes perfect sense. And folks, if we take everything we just said now and we pivot it and everything we've just said, this is three years. So this is technically for all intents and purposes, the short term. If we go back and remember that the real estate game is a long-term game, you can play it short term, but it's more of a long-term game. And we we move in that direction. Let's talk a little bit about the long-term supply and demand imbalance in in homes and rental homes right. that are available. And let's start to touch on that a little bit, because this is where you start to see the stage set beautifully, folks, depending on your asset class. But we're coming out of this thing. We may have rates jump down a little bit. It's going to hurt if you have to make a capital decision right now. But let's talk about that supply and demand imbalance for a minute, and maybe where we're going from here across the Okay, so just
1: one comment, one thing is on the recent yeah. Leneman letter, we did research on seven and 10 year investment returns, depending on when you did it. And in particular, we looked at periods of capital market disarray. And it turns out that is when you tend to do best. Now, by the way, it's when you're terrified to go in, it's when you may not have the money to go in. And in fact, the reason it's a good time to go in is that if you do have the money and the courage, you've got something rare. Money and courage at a time most people don't and come back seven and 10 years from now and you'll have done better than normal simply because in a competitive business, if you've got something rare, you'll tend to do better. So I would say that. Now let's right. take the housing. A funny thing happened on housing. You got to go back 20 years ago. And from 2002 to 2006, we built about 2.5 million more houses than we needed in a four-year period. That was pretty prodigious. And then we stopped building homes. We actually were destroying more homes than we were building. We were destroying homes. And so quickly, we went from a surplus of homes to a deficit of homes by the beginning of 2012. When I say a deficit, vis-a-vis the demographic growth right? Just you have bodies, you need homes, the population's growing, you need homes and so forth. Okay. But the capital markets lagged and there were a whole lot of things that with zero short-term interest rates, down payments were hard to come by. Why? Because grandma had no income on her life savings that were in bank accounts and CDs. And since she didn't have any income, she couldn't give to her grandkids for the down payment. So there were a lot of factors and NIMBYism. So all of the factors, including NIMBYism, played into it to the point where we have a shortfall of at least 3 million single-family homes. And some legitimate people put it as high as 4 and 5 million single-family homes over that 20, the last 20 years in spite of having that big excess to start. So let's go back. And I say nimbyism plays a role, but capital markets played a role. Zero interest played a role. But we've got a three and a half million single family shortfall. That's three and a half percent for something people really want. Now, if it's 3.5% shortfall for bubble gum, the price will go up, but not so much. You'll chew a different kind of gum, you'll buy a candy bar. But a home people really want. So the fundamentals underlying home prices over that period have been up. And it's only when the interest rates spike occurred and people got wifty that it ate into it. But there's a fundamental shortfall of single family, multifamily. Multifamily was in pretty good balance right until the financial crisis. Capital dried up. And as you remember, it dried up for about five years for development, right? Roughly from late 2008 until about 2014. There was not a lot of development money. And again, we were destroying more apartments than we were building in those years. And we were at more or less right supply demand. And we got to where we were about a million short. At the end of 2019 out of about 44 million units. And now we have gotten that down to about 400 to 500,000. So housing is fundamentally underbuilt. NIMBYism makes it hard to make up. Try as we might, hard to make up. There are fundamental rental pressures because single family being underproduced means people are going to rent longer and Multi being underproduced means people are going to pay more. And then there's one other factor that is recently being created. So two thirds of all households own their home, and two thirds of those people have a mortgage. Okay. Average mortgage is about 200,000 on a $300,000. Mortgage. Okay. So 42 per two thirds of two thirds is about 42%. Okay. of American households or two-thirds of American homeowners locked in roughly a 2% mortgage interest rate in 2020, 2021, and very early 2022. For 30 years, they locked it in. Now, if you think about it, that gives them versus any normal history. What's normal history? the mortgage interest rate would have been 4.5%, 5%. 5%. They have 25 to 3% lower interest rates than any time in history on their mortgage. That gives them about 5% more income than they would, well, I shouldn't say income, as if income, resources, spending spending more than normal. And of course, that's a powerful force. But they only have it as long as they don't sell their home. And if you give people a 5% of their income subsidy not to sell their home, a lot of people aren't going to sell their home when they normally would have sold it. Now, I'm not saying they'll never sell it. But if you're going to sell in five years, you're going to sell in eight. If you're going to sell in eight years, you're going to sell in 10. You're gonna sell in 10, you're gonna sell in 15. Why? Because walking away from a 5% of your income subsidy is huge. And again, that's economic long COVID symptom. What's that mean for apartments? That means for apartments, there's gonna be a shortage of existing single family homes to be purchased, which means people are going to more likely have to rent longer. Or rent a single family home because people aren't going to part with that subsidy, and so that's another good force for multifamily.
0: family And driving into that a little bit more, you may know the statistic, but about what percentage of people in this country have kids? Do would you know? Oh, uh, the I used to
1: know. That was actually one of, part of my PhD thesis. Let's say You've got you must have around forty percent of the households have minor
0: children. I would have said 50. It's got to be pretty percent. So figure half of them and some are going to be retiree households. By the way,
1: do one clarification. Are we counting 30-year-olds where the parents are still playing the phone (laughs) bell Miners or not. That's us. No, but I would, yeah, 40 to 50 percent is right.
0: Yeah. And so the point there is, yes, now these people, a lot of these people have sub 3% mortgages, which you don't want to get rid of. But then you mentioned it, it doesn't mean they're not going to get rid of it. If you're, it may just take them longer because eventually those kids are going to grow up. They're going to need their own space and you're going to have to buy a house, right? So that is what it is, but it just lowers the inventory point that you inventory have Inventory flow,
1: right? Just gets reduced. Flow. Inventory, inventory flow gets flow, reduced. Right. And again, would that have happened? If I had asked you in February 28, 2020, do you think people are going to lock in 30-year mortgages in the next two years at 2%, you'd have said, of course not. But there it was. And it was there because of COVID and the policies related to COVID. And now we're living with these and they don't go away overnight because a 30-year mortgage gives people a lot of time. And there's a whole lot of other kind of knock-ons.
0: And so what I'm hearing, Peter, is residential's in pretty good shape for a time. And so if we go to new and noteworthy, I think we all know office has got some problems until people get back to work and the CEOs make that happen. In the other sectors, do you see any kind of new and noteworthies who may be poised for awesome growth given the stage that well, is currently
1: Well, I think hospitality's in a good phase and, I'll, and I can give you a whole lot of reasons. But remember, I told you we're only 95%. Of domestic travel. And we should have had three years of growth. So we should have been at like 106%. So the gap is bigger than it seems in the sense of pent up, right? So hospitality. So
0: they might be poised for a springboard. Poised for a springboard.
1: And then you add to that, China is just barely coming back. And China spent twice as much on international travel as US citizens did pre pandemic. And they have just barely begun to come back. Just barely seeing them in some tour. I live a couple of blocks from Independence Hall and we just are barely seeing a few come back. They'll come back big in the next few years. So travel and tourism looks good. Industrial still looks good. Historically, in the old days, the economy grew 1%. It was one more, 1% more boxes, 1% more containers. And then we started selling a lot through the internet. And the internet uses a lot more square footage than traditional distribution does because of wider aisles and all this stuff. And that meant that whereas supply grew at about the rate of the economy, you kept supply-demand balanced, supply grew at about the rate of the economy. That was true, but it way lagged demand. Rent went up, occupancy went up, and that has not al- been eliminated. And I think it's going to be hard to eliminate that. For some reason, it looks pretty good. Retail. I learned real estate from among others, but especially Al Taubman, and he taught me an early, early on in the mid '80s. He taught me bad retail. Retail is always bad, and good retail is always hard work. And what did he mean by that? Bad retail. Even if you buy it really cheap, you cannot lower your rent enough to change the price of Cheerios. And if you can't change the price of Cheerios, you're not changing spending pattern or, you know, where people are shopping and your center doesn't just need cheap rents. It needs people to come. Okay. Be attracted and good retail is always hard work. That's why some people made a fortune in good retail, including. Amazon, right, being good retail. Why? Because you're in the one of the toughest businesses ever, satisfying ever-changing consumer demand. That's your. So you're taking physical space and you're trying to satisfy ever-changing consumer demand. Good luck. But if you do it well, you can make a lot of money. But if you just buy retail and you're not going to be able to attract people, it doesn't matter. So do I like retail? I like retail a lot if it's good retail and with good operators. And I don't like it at all if it's not good retail, even with a good operator. And especially if it's bad retail with a bad operator.
0: It's interesting. I guess it goes against the field of dreams saying of if you build it, they will come. Not necessarily. It better be in a good walkable spot where the retail is going to pull the people in.
1: Absolutely. And it, absolutely. Those days of building, they will come. There was a moment that was true where a lot of people lived in the suburbs and not a lot of retail was in the suburbs. So you didn't have to build it very good. You just had to build it convenient. So the convenient overcame the quality, really. Do you think the original suburban Retail was as good as shopping at Macy's in New York or John Wanamaker in Philadelphia. No way. It's the store. But it was real convenient. Build it and they'll come. Well, we've built enough of it over the years that just being there does nothing for me. There's no shortage of convenient out there. It actually has to be good, right? It's, it actually has to be good. And we've been in that situation for, what, 20 years probably? Being there is not probably. enough.
0: And, man, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but I know you've got a schedule to keep to. But there's one question that I think we discussed in the very beginning, and I was going to say the name Sam Zell, and you were going to tell me a story.
1: Sam Zell was one of the most, maybe the most unusual person I ever knew. We were friends for 33 years. We did some business together. I was on boards with him. I traveled with him. I worked for him. I learned unbelievable amounts from him. I like to believe he was a big liniment letter reader. He was an avid reader of everything. He was a big liniment letter reader. I'd like to think I taught him some things or at least challenged him to think about some things. But yeah, and I have a million stories, but I'll give you one story that I think captures a lot of Sam. Many years ago, we flew around the world in seven days we saw michael jordan win his last nba championship he sam was one of the owners we watched the game together in his suite we go to the airport in chicago we head east and we make i think seven stops in seven days we sleep in the plane like three nights and by the way six of the seven stops we had meetings and we did a presentation To audiences about real estate and the US. And at that time, a lot of public, a lot of companies were going public and the opportunity funds. So our mission was to tell these foreign audiences that had been lined up about not his fund or not my, just what's happening. And we flipped, we each did a presentation to each of these audiences in Jakarta, in Israel, in Spain, in Taipei. I'm sure I can't remember the other place. So anyway, and we flipped a coin and said, whoever wins gets their choice. Do you go first or second on the first day we present? And you can imagine we were each presenting about 20, 25 minutes with Q&A, probably 20 minutes each Q&A for 20, 25. Okay. So I won the coin flip. So I said, I'll go first. I was okay. I was pretty good. I did my stuff. I had a couple of little jokes. I made my points and so forth. Then Sam went, Sam made his points. He had a couple of cute jokes. Okay. So now the next day, the deal was if you went first, the first day you went second, the second day. Okay. So the next day we're in a different city and Sam goes first and he stole all my good stuff. He abandoned (laughs) Probably seven minutes of his, let's say, 20 minutes. He abandoned his weakest seven minutes and took my strongest seven minutes because he had good taste. And so now, instead of having 20 minutes, I've got 13. And as I'm there, I'm trying to come up with on the fly. He's talking, I can't see that. And I'm trying to fine tune and come up with more stuff and so forth. And then I would do my 20 minutes, Okay. And so the next day, I'm first. So I stole probably six minutes of his best material. And now you can imagine that's really good now because we've stolen from one another. And then he would come and he would have to scramble and come up with new stuff. But because smart, you're coming up with some good stuff as you're interacting. And you can imagine after the talks, we talked about stuff together for a while and brainstormed. Okay. Well, then it's his turn to go first again. Well, he stole the best stuff again, but it's, and the point of it was, is that his mind was really active. He was able to take in, he was a great sorter through of what is the gems. What are the themes? How do I fit them into my themes? We would make fun of each other, stealing each other's material. And yet the material just kept getting better and better. So that by the end, what we presented was like five times better than what we first presented. And we thought what we first presented was pretty good. So it captures a lot of things. It captures... Flying around the world with Sam was fun, but he was also intellectually engaging. It was challenging one another to be better. Sam was remarkable at challenging you to be better. He was very kind and, very, and yet very challenging at the same time. And so that I could tell a million stories, but that story captures Sam in a lot of ways in that it made me better. On the fly, it made him better on the fly, and the audience benefited from it. We got laughs from it, and we learned.
0: That is amazing. It, it, for one thing, it shows you that collaboration is the work of the future, because it's, it's not a scarcity mindset thing. Like, oh, you took my stuff. No, you made it better indirectly. Absolutely,
1: absolutely right. It was a real, yeah, that was memorable. Starting with Michael winning That's- his last championship. So that was great fun.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Linneman, Peter, thank you for coming on the show. This has been fantastic, fun, engaging, good conversation. Folks, I encourage you if you're making investment decisions in any way, if you need to understand the macroeconomics, go read the Linneman letter, linnemanassociates.com. Look for Dr. Linneman on all sorts of podcasts, YouTube channels, the guy's everywhere. So, check it out. Dr. Linneman, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Hope to have you back soon, maybe after the next Linneman letter. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me, Chad.
2: This episode is brought to you by Agora's Investment Management Solution. Are you a GP or syndicator still using spreadsheets or an outdated investment management platform? Advance to Agora, the next step in investment management evolution. Agora's customers raise capital 40% faster and reduce operational expenses by 25%. With Agora, you can collect commitments faster, raise more capital by creating beautifully designed data rooms, public brochures, and automated subscription flows. Manage all your investor relationships efficiently with the most advanced investor CRM on the market. Delight your investors with a beautifully designed investor portal, which is fully customized to fit your brand and integrate seamlessly into your website distribute payments in a click directly from the platform and automatically generate and send all the reports and statements your investors need. Agora is suited for all types and all sizes of GPs or syndicators, starting with an affordable $5.99 a month subscription plan. Click the link in the description to book a live demo and learn what Agora can do for your business. Agora, better investment management.
0: All right, friends, that was a pretty impactful episode talking through the different tiers of what we view to be the marketing funnel in our business. This is applicable to any business out there, whether you're an entrepreneur and an investor or you own your own business or you do something in this world, the quality of traffic you drive to your business is the only way you're going to generate effective and impactful and lasting customers. And remember, it's not about spamming people, it's about building a meaningful relationship in a systematic and engaged way. So with that being said, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you got any value, please like us on or subscribe to our podcast at Holy smokes. Okay, edit that out, guys. If you got any value out of this episode, please hit us on YouTube at Real Estate Runway Podcast. You can subscribe there to the video version or on anywhere podcasts are found. You can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you got any value out of this, five-star review and a thoughtful comment is worth its weight in gold, helps us grow the show and reach more people just like you. If you want to apply to be on the show, please visit us at thequattroway.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to reach out to us, request a topic, or just say hello, podcast at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway Podcast. Friends, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.